Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregel Byrne. Every week I speak to leading sustainability thinkers and practitioners, scientists, economists, NGOs, business leaders and investors. We discuss the sustainability imperative, the key challenges, the latest thinking and what's working in sustainability, resilience and regeneration. The Environmental Justice Foundation is an NGO working to protect environmental security as a basic human right. Using powerful films and photography alongside hard-hitting investigations, EJF exposes environmental destruction and ensuing threats to human rights, telling the stories of those at the front lines. EJF takes local fights to the very heart of governments and businesses across the world to secure lasting global change. By providing training for grassroots campaigners, EGF also helps to give a voice to the next generation of environmental defenders, strengthening global action to protect people, wildlife and our shared planet. You can find out more at ejfoundation.org. I'm particularly honoured today to have an opportunity to speak to James Thornton on the sustainability agenda. James is the founding CEO of Client Earth, a path-breaking law firm that uses advocacy, litigation and research to address the greatest challenges of our time, including nature loss and climate change. Client Earth has an extraordinary record of success built on solid law and science and has brought about fundamental change in the way environmental protections are made and enforced across Europe. Thank you very much, James, for joining me today on the Sustainability Agenda. It's a pleasure. Now, uh, before we start, if you're able to just tell us a little bit about your personal background, uh, your current work focus, and really uh, the heart of it all is the work that Client Earth does. Sure. So I'm uh, an environmental lawyer, and uh, I started out in the United States uh, a long time ago um, and started practicing law in uh, uh, 1979-80. Uh, and then did uh, environmental work in the US for a long time. And then uh, I, I came here uh, to the UK uh, for love and um, then looked around and saw that the environmental movement in the UK and the rest of the EU really didn't use uh, lawyers very much. And since I'd had the experience of the, uh, the real power that using law can add to the environmental movement, I thought, well, this is an opportunity to help the movement and to add this new dimension uh, in in a way that uh, would be very interesting. So, um, so that's that's was really the the impetus for for Client Earth. I come from a, a family of lawyers. My father was a law professor, uh, so I guess there was no escaping. And uh, we have uh, there were four four boys in the family, all of whom became lawyers. But I I didn't set out to become a lawyer. I, I <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Like every other environmentalist I've ever met, um, and in fact, like most children, we uh, uh, all, all environmentalists I know fell in love with the natural world as a as a child, and um, and then I retained that fascination really and studied uh, in biology at, at the university, and uh, thought of becoming a scientist, and then uh, realized that was about in the seventies when people started noticing that there were problems emerging and realized that biology might not be the, the strongest answer to set, settling those problems and saving nature. So I became a lawyer. And there wasn't much environmental law at that point. It's a long time ago. And uh, it's been very exciting to participate in the, the creation of what's now a very, very 
rich field uh, of law uh, all over the world. Hugely impactful. Um, uh, yes, we will talk about that. Now, I, I just like to try and set the scene a little bit where, uh, and get a sense. Um, obviously, there are all kinds of interlocking environmental issues, um, social and political as well. It's, it's, it's a, a bit of a troubled time. But I'm just wondering, uh, amongst the, the plethora of, of, of issues, it, it, what is worries you the most or keeps you awake most and, at the moment? And, and how urgent do you think the situation is? Well, to go to the last part first, I, I think the situation uh, is uh, intensely urgent. Uh, and anyone who um, pays a lot of attention to what's going on with uh, climate change and the loss of nature uh, would feel the same. And they, they do. I mean, we're, we're at a point now where the uh, time is in a very fundamental and systematic way, changing how our civilization globally deals with um, the use of energy, uh, the way it uh, deals with its agriculture, its transportation. That's all vis-a-vis -vis, uh, climate change. And then loss of nature um, is also very severe and accelerating. I mean, recent studies show that uh, there are actually 70% um, less wild animals living in the world than there were about uh, 40 years ago. Um, the humans weigh more than all wild mammals at this point. And, you know, the uh, the number of chickens we have uh, greatly exceeds the number of wild birds I read the other day. So um, this is all pointing in the direction of the, uh, what the scientists call the sixth extinction. You know, in the history of life on Earth, there have been five prior extinctions, including the demise of the dinosaurs, and we're precipitating the next one. So um, things uh, with respect to saving nature uh, and uh, slowing down uh, climate change could hardly be more severe. I, I thought for a long time uh, of our work as to save civilization. And um, since I live in the UK, I thought, well, better not sound too grandiose. And um, uh, then I heard uh, the, the great master, David Attenborough, say exactly the same thing a couple of years ago. He said, uh, civilization is now in the balance and we need to save civilization. So that, that is how, uh, how strong the, the issues are. The good news is that we can actually do something about it in a very meaningful and uh, we could do it in a very successful way. But I imagine that's what you want to get into next. Um, yes, well, very much I'd like to speak to you about that. And um, I've just been looking through your uh, website more recently on, on the progress of uh, Client Earth and the kind of work you've been doing. Uh, it's immensely impressive, uh, really, uh, you know, whether it's the petrochemical giant, uh, you know, uh, Ineos uh, suspending plans for work on, on uh, plastics production units or uh, Drax, uh, you know, abandoning uh, uh, you know, plans to to, to build the uh, largest uh, gas plant. I mean, it's it's quite quite a phenomenal uh, track record. Um, this is testimony to, uh, in the first instance, the, the the power of the law, but also the power of client earth as well. And maybe you can just talk a little bit about uh, you know the progress uh, on that front and 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 the power of the law. Sure. Uh, certainly one of my favorite topics <laughs> and uh, it's uh, it is because it's it's so effective really so uh, I was mentioning earlier that um, about adding it to the environmental uh, movement the environmental community in in Europe uh, this was my throughout the UK and Europe was my original idea 
And we've certainly done that. Um, so uh, there are, you don't use the law uh, in isolation. You know, it's always part of a community of effort. So um, there's um, a, a terrific skill uh, throughout um, the European environmental community uh, in uh, using uh, policy and uh, advocacy and, um, and communications. So all of these things go together. And uh, in order to make sure we put them all together. So we're a group now of lawyers, about 180 lawyers from about 30 different countries. And um, we have offices now in London and Brussels, and Berlin and Warsaw and Madrid, uh, but also in Beijing, Los Angeles, and soon Southeast Asia. So um, in the 15 years that we've been working, we've become very global. The total team is now around 300 people. We've been growing about 25% a year. The reason for that is that, uh, that it simply works. So when we work with uh, other NGOs, and we work with a lot of other NGOs, I counted, uh, or I asked my team to count recently, the number of um, uh, other environmental organizations that we have formal partnerships with and there were uh, over 250. And there were then a lot more that we simply helped and gave, gave advice to. So uh, we, we work with this whole network of, of groups around the world and try to build the strength of the whole environmental community. But what does law add? Well, law adds a lot. You know, um, you can protest, uh, and protest is very important, but governments often ignore protest. Um, if you also have ready uh, a lawsuit, um, that may be successful. It, um, it adds great power. So, you know, you can go to uh, court and sue governments um, and get courts to, uh, to do what they're supposed to be doing, but not doing. Um, you can go to court and uh, sue companies uh, when they are uh, misbehaving. It's part of a grand strategy. And everything we do is, um, is very strategic. So you think about where you want to get to. And I mentioned saving civilization, that's a big aim. But um, one of the things you want to do is to move society off fossil fuels as rapidly as possible and uh, towards renewable energy. So how do you do that? That was the question I asked myself 15 years ago, starting Planet Earth. So what do I do in Europe to do that? And then you talk to the scientists because the scientists are really, well, you know, the, we call it client earth because we think of the earth and everyone who lives on her as our clients. But if you're a lawyer and your client is the earth, how do you find out what your client needs? And for me, the answer has always been, you go to the science and the scientists. So I did that 15 years ago and said, what was then a very small team, you know, how could we deploy our talents and very limited funding since we're a charity uh, to help, you know, reduce climate change as much as possible. And the scientists said, well, it's really clear we're still building coal-fired power stations in Europe. See if you can do something about that. So I said when we were about six people, okay, we can stop all the new coal-fired power stations in Europe. And, you know, 15 years later, we've actually managed to do that. And the, the way you do it um, is by, so there were 30 in Poland that were being built. So we set up a, a Polish office with a Polish team of lawyers who then had a whole network of uh, of NGOs all through Poland. And then there were the 14 or 15 big new coal-fired power stations that were about to be built. And we found a way to bring a case about every single one of them. We sued each of these companies. And that was on technical environmental grounds. 
And uh, we had good cases. We had good lawyers. We had good NGOs working with us. And every one of those uh, coal-fired power stations was ultimately abandoned. So no new coal-fired stations in Poland, even though they were looking to build 30. And then recently, the government wanted to build one and said, this is going to be the last new coal-fired power station in Europe. And that's kind of a backhanded compliment, I think, to our, to our, our work. Um, but we said, uh, no, bad idea. And we said, we're going to try something new here because environmental law is very powerful. But we realized about five, six years ago uh, that even if you properly enforced all environmental laws, which isn't done against governments and companies, and we do a lot of that, but even if you did it perfectly around the world, that wouldn't get you where you needed to be in order to really slowly uh, stop or quickly rather stop climate change. So um, if you want to quickly stop climate change, what other types of law do you use? Well, um, we said, follow the money. So let's create a team of, uh, of legal experts who are uh, really expert in all areas of law that have to do with uh, corporate finance, corporate governance, pensions, insurance, banking. Let's put together a team like that. And we now have a team of more than 15 people who are expert in those things, um, came in from big law firms to do this work uh, in this setting. And um, it's the only team like that in an environmental organization in the world. And it allows us to do some very cool things. So here we were in Poland and we had this um, last coal-fired power station in Europe that the Polish government wanted to build, big energy company called Enea that was going to build it. And we had uh, the idea, we said, look, um, let's use corporate law to stop this because this is just a bad idea. Uh, so we said, okay, this is not an environmental case. It's a pure corporate case. We'll buy shares. So we did. We bought 30 euros worth of shares. And then we got an independent economic analysis showing that it was a bad investment. Why? Well, the good news is over the last 10 years or more, um, the market now is more on our side in that renewable energy is actually cheaper than fossil fuels in most places in the world. That's a beautiful thing. So we took this economic study to the company and they said, we're going to build it anyway. So we uh, sued the officers and directors of the company, which is something that keeps them up at three o'clock in the morning. And we said, you're personally liable here for not acting in the best interests of the shareholders because it's just a bad investment. And we've already proved that to you. Now, the good news is that we've won the court case. Um, uh, you know, our argument was you're ruining our 30 euro investment. And um, the court agreed. Uh, the right wing newspapers took it very seriously. It wasn't crazy environmentalists sue the company. It was investors question fossil fuels, which is a good way for it to be portrayed. And that's what we were doing. And the day after we won, the punchline uh, of that story is the day after we won, the share price actually went up 4%. Yes, yeah, that's fascinating. It's fascinating, but and it gets to the heart of another question here, which is very interesting as well. Um, is is the power of the law in 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 this way? Um, with Exxon recently and the uh, new directors that came on the board. 
board uh, through engine number one. Um, and in the end, it seems that the argument came down to, uh, again, it wasn't an environmental argument. It was one in terms of, I guess, fiduciary responsibility and uh, shareholders and uh, uh, good business decisions and so forth. Um, so that is clearly, uh, as you illustrated there, powerful and, uh, you know, and, and very, very good. But um, just in the same way as you said that sometimes the, the, the existing law isn't enough, um, you know, how important is this idea at the heart of it all and embodied particularly in Delaware, uh, uh, this idea of the by juicy responsibility of, uh, you know, uh, companies to maximize shareholders return. It, how much progress can be made? You know, we see tremendous momentum of large corporations stepping up to the SDGs, also in terms of, you know, net zero and so forth. But if at the end of the day, they have, a uh, as, as currently interpreted at least, a fiduciary responsibility to maximize shareholders, is that not a, a major obstacle? Well, uh, fiduciary duty is, is really key in all of this. And um, one of the things that we've been arguing for some years um, under UK law, is that the uh, the uh, current law governing um, the way companies behave in the UK, the Companies Act, um, actually uh, allows you to envision uh, a wider community of interest than merely the, the shareholders. So uh, it becomes an issue of uh, duties to a broader group of stakeholders. Um, and the fiduciary duty runs that way. Um, interestingly, in the in the Netherlands, uh, the court was willing to look at it uh, in in that way when um, a, a group of uh, NGOs brought a case against Shell. Yes, yes, in the Netherlands, uh, and essentially what the court said was, um, in order to be a good corporate citizen, um, you need to uh, look to protect the environment in which you work. The environment in which you work includes the climate, the planet, the people. And therefore, we, the court, um, say that your duty runs to um, actually reducing your emissions. Now, that's a marvelous and powerful example. The Dutch courts are particularly progressive. Um, would we get a court in Delaware to say that? Um, that's a good question. Um, you know, and, and, and in fact, I'm working on that. Um, but, uh, you know, what we certainly, um, I think, have great scope to do and... Um, the uh, engine number one and others are trying this, is to say that um, even more narrowly considered a group of stakeholders as shareholders, what the officers and directors need to do is look to the long-term interests of the company. The long-term interests of the company are, um, are rapidly shifting as it becomes clearer and clearer uh, what the impacts of climate change should be. So uh, there are many oil and gas companies uh, and uh, a great many of them, uh, maybe maybe all, uh, but a great many of them are being managed in such a way that they are not managing for the risk of climate change to the business. And that really is the heart of, uh, of the fiduciary duty. So uh, if you're not taking account of climate change risk and how you make your decisions, then you're failing in, in your pure uh, corporate law duties. Fascinating. And there does seem to be tremendous momentum there, as you mentioned, uh, you mentioned Shell um, and, and, and uh, um, you know, what's going on with Exxon and, and the other work. Um, you, you mentioned, uh, I guess, two words that, that got me thinking that he's personally liable, which I, I guess is an alarm bell for, for many corporate executives. Um, 
what is the situation with respect? I mean, these are matters of law and hard to generalize, I suppose. But with respect to personal liability, we, you know, we've uh, we're talking about the fossil fuel industry, and there are uh, does seem to be the work of and the work of Naomi Oreskes on on the you know the fact that fossil fuel companies have misrepresented the public uh, on climate science and so forth. And you know, it's in the air the question of that possibility, and, and, and there are many activists that would seek this to to hold fossil fuel companies to account. And the, the, there's a precedent, I suppose, in in one in, in many senses, really, with the tobacco industry. Uh, and, and and Naomi did work on that as well. Um, but um, this question of, I guess, I don't know, is it called the corporate veil, but, you know, fines for corporations. Okay, so big fines, uh, you know, what kind of impact do they really have in these kind of situations? And how often do you look to questions of personal liability and so forth? And and can you just talk a little bit about that? Because that would seem to be quite a a powerful way of, of, uh, I guess, uh, engaging attention and also change. Yeah, um, and it's it's a very dynamic area and um, is uh, still evolving. Now, in the tobacco litigation, as, as I'm sure you know, uh, it took oh, it took a long time. Um, it was, yes, which we don't have, yes. <laughs> yeah, and, um, and the demonstration of cause, causality, as lawyers call it, <clears throat> between smoking cigarettes and causing cancer was very clear. Uh, it ultimately became very clear that tobacco companies knew very well what they were doing and they were actually adding extra nicotine to addict people to their products. Uh, so at that point, when this genuinely bad behavior uh, was shown and harm was shown, ultimately they did uh, they did have to pay these very large fines. What did it do to them? Well, I mean, as uh, it's been a while since I looked at cigarette use in, uh, in the U.S., uh, but I, 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 what I recall reading, and I'm not an expert in this, is that they actually began to uh, try to move to other markets, not uh, sell quite so heavily in the U.S., where they were then, you know, under threat of repeat action. But they've, they've gone out to, sadly, uh, to try and, you know, kill young people in, um, in Asia and, and so on. So it was a kind of displacement, uh, I think, but still very, very important. And, um, you know, we just need to then see similar cases elsewhere in the world and finally shut them down. But if, um, to go back to the uh, fossil fuels and, and money, um, there are there are cases now uh, in the United States um, and, and elsewhere uh, in which um, the plaintiffs are trying to get uh, money damages out of uh, the fossil fuel company. And the argument is very parallel. Um, which is the fossil fuel companies. So it's uh, eight, if if I'm remembering the numbers correctly, the uh, the eight largest uh, oil companies are responsible for something like 14% of the total CO2 emissions uh, now in the atmosphere. So, um, uh, and it's quite clear that the CO2 emissions are um, a main reason the world is heating up. So um, a number of uh, government entities, for example, the city of Oakland, California, um, have brought lawsuits against the uh, oil company, the major oil companies, saying um, we can estimate that we're going to need to build seawalls uh, around Oakland, California, and it's going to cost whatever it will cost, $100 billion. Um, you are responsible for 14% of the emissions uh, globally. You should be responsible for 14% of the $100 billion that is going to cost us. Now, that's a pretty good argument, and it's a, it's a very standard argument in the law of torts, which is the law of injury. Um, 
Nobody has yet won that argument, uh, but these cases are still relatively new. And the reason is that um, two really. One, uh, courts are um, really want to see that there's a causal relationship between, you know, if you punch me in the nose, you know, the blood runs and you can see that. Uh, the further away you get from the actual physical injury, uh, the more uncomfortable courts are with, with saying there's a, a cause. And um, that will change in time, I think, because you have now judges like are people like everybody else, and they're seeing all the fires, they're seeing all the floods, they're beginning to realize, I think, that climate change is very real. The scientists are beginning to say the statistical probability of this event being caused by climate change is increasingly high. So a day will come when a judge says, okay, I'm convinced there's a causal connection here. Now, the other thing that judges are nervous about is, um, say, Exxon. Um, if you said that Exxon was responsible for whatever it is, 14% of Oakland or somebody else's damages, then in theory, every human being in the world uh, could sue Exxon for 14% of their damages. That would put Exxon out of business. Now, from my point of view, not a bad idea. Um, but a judge is less likely to uh, be comfortable with that, which is why you saw in the Shell case <clears throat> that the court didn't give money damages. What they said to Shell is um, what courts are much more comfortable with saying, which is that because of your bad conduct in the past, you need to correct your conduct in the future so it's no longer bad conduct. So instead of saying to Shell, you need to pay out these enormous sums and damages, uh, they, they said that within a reasonable time frame, you need to stop making products that have carbon emissions. Now, that's a pretty good result. Um, I'd be quite satisfied if you could get results like that against Exxon and BP and all the others, uh, because uh, then if you shut them down from uh, from making those products, uh, you've gone a long way to solving our problem. Back to the INEOS case, um, there is an, an insidious plan um, called Plan B, now, that, that sounds like, uh, you know, a, a, a crazy conspiracy theory. But in fact, it's the, the name that the consultants for the oil and gas companies use uh, for their plans. Their plan B is if governments wind up restricting us, or courts wind up restricting us from burning this stuff, uh, what we're going to do is just make a lot more plastic because plastic is made of oil and gas. So any of us was looking ahead and building this vast new plastics facility to use up oil and gas so that the oil and gas companies could say, okay, we're not burning it, but we're sure going to sell as much as we possibly can. We're not going to reduce our sales. So yes, yes. you have to then be conscious of let's, we need to prevent all these plastics facilities from, from being built, which we did successfully with that one in, in the Netherlands. Um, but it's uh, so the, the money damages, very important. Um, the day will come when uh, a judge is comfortable doing it, uh, and then things might change very rapidly. In the meantime, um, getting uh, courts to say, clean up uh, your act is, uh, is awfully good. Yes, it's fascinating. Uh, with that, and uh, straying a little bit off uh, topic or, or uh, from the legal perspective, with this major divestment initiatives, uh, which are tremendous momentum and support, so forth, 
uh, I suppose it's, it is conceivable that you could end up with some of these oil companies in the hands of maybe, you know, who knows, some, some particular investor groups and various kinds of uh, uh, private equity, who knows, whatever, but um, that might not have either the resources or the commitment to, to deal with uh, the kind of penalties that might finally be imposed on some of these companies if this vision were to uh, be realized over, you know, if they said, well, actually over decades, you know, you've been uh, pumping out these CO2 emissions and, you know, taking that into account over this period of time, the, you know, the, the, the financial implications uh, that just might not be able to be satisfied. Well, that's right. I mean, um, but in the meantime, I mean, there is a danger in um, having uh, private equity uh, pick up uh, some of these uh, entities um, because, uh, I mean, it has happened with at least one coal mine in which uh, which should have been shut down, but the private equity people were were happy to run it as as long as they could uh, in order to you know extract the last penny. So um, so then following up, you know, the um, uh, the divestment, but actually focusing in on on the companies um, and preventing them from acting badly is going to be very important. Whether that's by legislation or by lawsuit, it would be very very important. Yes, yes. Now, I, I, a lot of the work you've talked about the, and the great uh, success you, you've achieved has been enforcing particular laws that are in, in place, as it were. What about getting new legislation? How does that work? Is that, is that a way forward? Is that a promising way? What are the challenges there? Yes, it's, uh, it's equally important. I guess about half of what we do is, um, is enforcing the law, and the other half is trying to improve the law. Um, so, Trying to improve the law very, very important because I mean the law is the rules of the game. The law are the rules by which society governs itself, and they're the, the rules uh, uh, essentially that we've all agreed to be bound by. So if you can if you can make better rules, then you can enforce those better rules. So that uh, we spend a lot of time on that. I'll give you um, an example uh, that's right from when we started up. Uh, so well, around 13 years ago, we started working on the common fisheries policy uh, in the EU because it was just being rewritten. And it's the law that uh, governs what can be uh, taken out of the sea by all of uh, the uh, EU countries. And it was um, it was a law that was in bad shape uh, because it was, uh, uh, you would have this uh, science committee say what could be removed by different countries and then the politicians would ignore it and they could ignore it with impunity. Uh, and what we knew from the scientists is if the law wasn't changed significantly to actually require countries to follow what the scientists said, then um, you would have a situation in which the fish stocks actually crashed and uh, would never, potentially never come back because that can happen with fish stocks. So um, we were still quite small, but we invested a lot of our nature uh, work uh, into helping the common fisheries policy be rewritten. Now, we did get a much better result. Uh, there were... Um, uh, requirements now that governments were legally bound to follow the scientific advice. But of course, then what happens is that the politicians ignore it anyway. So then you get into the second phase, which is then <laughs> enforcing the new law. So recently, so this is all taken years, and recently uh, in this last year, we've followed uh, uh, the developments. And then uh, as um, the law wasn't being followed, we've sued France, we've sued Ireland, and we've sued the Netherlands for violating this new and better law. So it gives you a, a clear sense of if you can look ahead and make better rules, then you can also be in the position of, of enforcing the rules uh, when you need to. 
And then there's other other work that is is related to this uh, that we do in China. Now, in China, we can't bring cases. Not surprising. I mean, a Chinese environmental group can't bring cases uh, in Europe either. So that's that's no surprise. But um, but I, we were invited in by the Supreme Court of China when it was writing uh, helping write uh, a law uh, to allow Chinese environmental groups to sue polluting companies, including those owned by the state. So uh, we helped write that law and helped set it up so that it works very well uh, from the point of view of the environmental groups. And then the judges asked us to start training the judges because they had made uh, then a thousand new uh, judges in China only to decide environmental cases because uh, yeah. they had decided they wanted to really enforce environmental laws uh, and bring the standards of enforcement up to like the West uh, because it was a terrible uh, it was terrible before that. So they, they made all these new judges and then they asked us to train them. So we've now trained over 1,500 judges. And then um, the prosecutors asked us to train them because the prosecutors got the right to sue um, not just companies, but also the Chinese government on behalf of the people. Uh, say the Ministry of Environment in Yunnan province wasn't enforcing the, you know, the air quality law or the water quality law. The prosecutors uh, got the right to do something about it. So they asked us to train them, including in, in how to bring cases against the Chinese government, because they'd never been able to do that. So that was pretty mind-blowing, because you, here you have the Chinese federal prosecutors coming to a, a law NGO, global law NGO, that's us, saying, help us, you know, figure out how to sue the Chinese government. Now, a few months ago, we got a thank you letter from the prosecutors. We've now trained over 1,200 of them. And the thank you letter said, thanks for your cooperation as a result of uh, all our work together, we have in 2020 alone brought over 80,000 uh, enforcement cases, the majority of them against government departments. So there you have this amazing thing going on that isn't yet seen in the West very much, um, in which uh, by going in and working to build the system, um, you know, we've helped create this opportunity for the people who want to do the right thing to really do the right thing. It's, that's, it, I take a lot of encouragement from that. No, that's fascinating. Well, it's extraordinary impact. Um, you talk about building the system and, and, and laws, the rules, the game. I just spoke to uh, Katharina Pistor. She's, I think, Professor of Comparative Law at, at, at Columbia. Um, and uh, she's just written this new book, The Code of Capital. But one of the ideas she talks about, um, just the, uh, in a sense, I guess she calls it the malleability of the law. And uh, one of the things that came out of the conversation was just uh, how successful lawyers are and how confident they are uh, in the United States particularly, um, but also that you know, she talked about muting regulatory conditions <laughs> and, uh, you know, how, how malleable the, the law was. Uh, presumably, you know, in some of these cases, you're dealing with, you know, uh, large corporations which have, you know, huge budgets, huge legal teams can afford to pay for, you know, uh, all kinds of legal talent and so forth. Um, when you're talking about your trajectory and so forth, it the successes are fantastic, but the work that must go into that, uh, James, and, you know, how do you do it? <laughs> well, you know, it's, um, there are these wonderful people who, um, who work with me. And uh, that's it, really. It's always, uh, in a sense, a David and Goliath uh, battle. But the good news, uh, one of the cool things about law is um, when, if, the, if it's a decent law or if you help write a better law, 
then um, it really levels the playing field. So then small resources can use it against uh, people with very large resources. So, you know, we have, we're charity um, and these companies are enormous. How do we win? Well, um, but because the law uh, allows you to level the playing field between the strong and the weak, you know, without the law there, uh, there's no chance at all. But with the law there, um, if you pick your fights uh, and you know what you're doing, you can really do it. And then you have to be talented and you have to, you know, you really have to work uh, at it. And this team of people at Client Earth is really like that. As the, I'm the CEO now, I'm not doing uh, the cases myself anymore. I'm helping everyone else. And uh, I never have to ask anyone to to work harder. Uh, my uh, frequently stated objective is please don't work as hard. You know, the dedication is enormous. And I, um, and they've, a lot of them are, I mean, super smart and they've uh, left corporate law firms to work at much lower salaries um, uh, in order to do this work. So you have this group of super talented people. We have a way of thinking that allows us to use law in a strategic way. It's very different from the way most lawyers uh, use law. You know, most, most lawyers, uh, you know, you go, if you're a corporation or an individual, you go to them with a problem and they're an expert in the field and they'll take you through the way to deal with your problem. We do the opposite. I mean, we go and interview the earth through science and then say, okay, knowing the science, uh, knowing that we need to reduce carbon emissions in this way, um, how do we use any field of law? How do we look at it creatively and say, there are so many dimensions in law how can all of them be brought to bear on this problem in order to give us a strategic result? And that's what makes it really exciting. Um, but there is this real ability in using law to have um, people of much lower resources um, win against uh, giants. Yeah, fantastic, fantastic. What's your sense of the mood with respect to regulation? Um, it's, uh, it's, it seems to, for a long time, have been a, at the opposite end of the spectrum from uh, some of the economic ideas that have been dominant in terms of free markets and the markets will work mm. things out and so forth. Um, but uh, again and again, you see the, the power of regulation and, and the necessity of regulation. Um, do you feel that there is uh, some sway towards that a recognition that the rules of the legal, you know, uh, that legal re- rules need to be implemented and put in place to, to really make the kind of progress we need and change in terms of climate change? No, absolutely. I mean, uh, the, the rules need to be changed in order to uh, make the, for example, the energy transition globally uh, faster. Now, uh, a number of companies are, uh, and a number of countries, many, um, are, do understand and are beginning to do the right thing. The concern is that they're not doing it fast enough. So um, I was looking the other day and preparing to go to the climate COP uh, in Glasgow in a few weeks at how many countries had uh, uh, pledged to become uh, carbon neutral by 2050. Um, and um, it, it appears that over 100 countries have said they will be carbon neutral by 2050. But then, then you look into... Um, you begin to try and look into the details, for example, the UK. Uh, and there isn't much there by way of details. So there are there are these statements that are quite good. Um, but what uh, is going to get us there? What, what we need are very uh, 
detailed examinations of sector by sector, industry by industry, of what needs to change, and then rules that help the changes happen. So, for example, in agriculture, uh, one of the 14, 15% of global climate emissions and probably the main reason for the loss of biodiversity around the world. Um, in the uh, EU, you have a, a framework called the Common Agricultural Policy, and it has given all the wrong incentives. So um, the uh, uh, agricultural industry has done more and more damage, both with respect to the climate and, and nature, and only by changing those rules um, will change happen. So we became very involved in the recent uh, last year and this uh, revision that is going on of the common agricultural policy. Um, and at the European level now, there are some better standards uh, and the idea that you need to reduce pesticides, you need to uh, have uh, farming sustainable in many ways. As often, uh, the, the rule that came out is uh, not nearly as detailed or as strong as you want. Then what you have to do um, is, uh, staying with Europe, move down to the member state level. Then you have to work in um, with the regulatory agencies in the parliament in France and say, here's what it actually means on the ground in Germany and so on. So um, you do need the regulations um, and um, the, uh, the laws and the regulations and smart companies for some time have been asking for them. Uh, during the, uh, those perilous Trump years, uh, you had even Exxon, saying, uh, please give us some uh, climate change rules because we want rules in order to have certainty about how to plan for the future. And uh, companies live by rules uh, and they live by having certainty uh, in their planning process. And if therefore you change the rules of the game in the right way, they will deliver exactly what's required. And they have to sue a few and you, know, you have to knock a few on the head. But but they will do it, but they won't do it without rules. I mean, they, I'll give you one more example. Five years or so ago, uh, we went to the pension industry in the UK uh, following the money because the pension industry is where an awful lot of money sits. You know, um, people's uh, savings are in pensions and the pensions invest the money, pension companies. So we, uh, we said, well, they're investing in frequently in all of the wrong things. You know, um, they're not investing in new technology. They're investing in oil and gas and so on. So let's go to them and talk about fiduciary duty. And let's tell them that they have a, a fiduciary duty to their members to take a long-term view of where the money is invested and they need to manage for the risk of climate change. Very obvious when you think about it. Um, and we did, and we went to, I think it was 10. And um, the... Uh, the men who ran them, and they were all men, um, said ultimately, well, let's assume that what you say is true about climate change. Uh, and let's assume that what you're saying is true about managing for risk. We will not do it unless you change the rules. We're a very conservative industry. We won't be the first one to do it. We simply won't. Uh, but if you change the rules and require us to manage for climate change risk, we'll do it with enthusiasm. We said, okay, at least they're being really, really clear about this. You know, if you know the story, then you can deal with the story. So then we went and, you know, um, worked hard and got the rules changed in the UK. So now pension 
managers do indeed need to look at climate change risk. And that will have a big impact on, on where the money goes. It's fascinating. And, uh, and a great example. Um, uh, at the same time, I guess the, the penchant for uh, self-regulation uh, is, is, is has been in the air for a long time and quite dominant as a, a approach. And, and many companies don't like regulation. And even if the you know whatever they might say, and I'm not talking about the, your examples, but in general, there's they're often part of uh, confederations or various kinds of collectives of businesses that are you know that do lobby very uh, intensely and with vast sums of money to get rid of regulations that certainly have done in recent decades. That's absolutely right. And um, so uh, what, what, um, what you have then are all these um, you know, uh, vested interests in incumbent industries um, who don't want to change. So that you have utilities, uh, RWE, huge utility in Europe, um, uh, wants to keep burning coal. Indeed, um, is doing, uh, opening a new coal mine in Germany, in Germany. Uh, that is undermining towns. Towns are sinking into this uh, into this coal mine, and we're, we're involved in a lawsuit there. So uh, when companies are behaving badly, and um, you know uh, you need to you need to sue them, um, you need to uh, uh, be very tough on the regulations, uh, or they won't change. Uh, you know the uh, um, slow. You know the big old incumbent industries. Um, if you think of them as, you know, are they quick and smart or are they slow and stupid? The answer is they're slow and stupid. Um, you know, and then you have all of these uh, quick, smart young companies who want to build uh, renewable energy. And those incumbents actually, um, you know, block access to the uh, to money. They block access to, um, in this case, to the grid. Um, so they really need to be dealt with both through regulation and through lawsuits. Now, they do resist and they will resist for as long as they possibly can. Um, but um, my, my hope is that um, as the situation becomes more and more obvious, then, uh, then we'll, we'll get the regulations we need. And also that uh, companies that are smart and leading edge will simply start doing better. And you're, you're seeing that now. And then, um, the, uh, and then you fix the regulations. So it encourages investment in the right things. Yes. If I just one question related to that, I want to move on to another topic quickly. Yeah. I'm mindful of the time, but um, uh, shareholders' resolutions, uh, shareholders' meetings, and uh, you know, climate resolutions and so forth. You've had for 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 some time uh, increasing volume of rhetoric from the investment industry, uh, big investors about you know their uh, stakeholder capitalism and climate and everything, and yet not voting to support shareholder resolutions on uh, climate. It's changing a little bit. Um, is that a neck of the woods that you're in, in, in at all? Yes, we, we do uh, work with groups of investors like uh, um, Climate Action 100 Plus and, uh, and, and others. Um, and uh, we do get involved in helping shape what resolutions look like. Uh, and these, these are very important. Um, you know, a, a very interesting example, uh, we were involved with a, a group of uh, shareholders, uh, global shareholders and Japanese shareholders and NGOs in, in Japan. Uh, looking at uh, the financing of uh, fossil fuel projects by the uh, third biggest bank in Japan, Mizuho. And um, so uh, there was a, a resolution um, that was calling for the bank to stop all financing of fossil fuel projects. And they were one of the biggest uh, fossil fuel financers uh, in Japan. And um, <clears throat> 34%, I think, uh, of the shareholders uh, agreed 
And that was after a big lobbying effort um, that we and others did with the international shareholders to vote the right way. But 34% doesn't carry the day. However, what was interesting about this example was in Japan, it was revolutionary because uh, you know, in the West, you see these kinds of resolutions, not in Japan. Hadn't happened before. So the bank was actually shamed by this large block of shareholding, uh, shareholders demanding action. And several weeks later, came back with its own plan uh, to drastically reduce uh, its uh, investment in fossil fuels. So here was a, an extremely interesting example of even though you didn't have uh, a majority, uh, you still had very very strong action uh, doing almost everything that was asked for by, the, by this bank. So that means tremendous number of fossil fuel projects uh, won't be financed. And that was as a result of that shareholder action. Amazing. Amazing. <clears throat> and on a, on a more personal level, James, um, you're a, a Zen priest, if I'm correct. Um, and uh, how does your uh, Buddhist thinking uh, approach to uh, inform your uh, the, the way you think about the ecological crisis and, and the work that you do. I interviewed a little while ago David Loy, who, whose most recent book is called Ecodharma, Buddhist Teachings for the Ecological Crisis. It was a very interesting uh, connection between uh, long-standing Buddhist teachings and contemporary environmental issues. Um, can you talk a little bit about that, James? Well, yes. So, yes, I... I was ordained uh, some time ago, and I've been practicing uh, Zen Buddhism for oh, at least 35 years. So uh, the main uh, teaching in Buddhism, really, uh, which is a teaching and then is also experienced once you start doing the meditation practice, is that there is no separation between us, between us and the environment, uh, and that we're, we're all one thing. Uh, so we're all one body. And... Uh, when you look at the environmental crisis, um, what's clear is that we're poisoning the body. So, uh, it, and if you see things in this way, you realize you're also responsible for taking care of life. So, how do I uh, take care of life? Well, I have this very powerful set of tools as a lawyer, and when I use it, I'm, I'm using it very consciously. When I use law, when I imagine a lawsuit, imagine a strategy, uh, imagine how to go out and fix the next problem. Uh, I'm very consciously using it as a way to benefit um, the, this whole body of living beings in the world, which is, which is you, me. It's the it's the smallest insects in the rainforest. It's the fish in the sea. It's Donald Trump. I mean, it's uh, it's everybody, uh, and the vision that that gives is very sustaining. So it gives you a very practical uh, way of doing something, which is helpful. So that even when you see for the first time what the devastation that we're um, bringing about looks like uh, and get anxious, get depressed. When you realize that there is something that you can do about it, um, it's a way of being active that lets you leave that negative space and become quite positive. So um, the, uh, it's, it's my job to take care of all life on earth because I'm a Buddhist. It's really quite simple. And it makes, uh, it makes for a good life. You get up in the morning and, uh, you know, um, uh, before I get out of bed, I, um, I ask, so what is my life about today? Um, and uh, often the answer is about helping to save all life on earth. Um, and then you say, what can I do today about it? And the answer is often, well, 
today maybe I'll just be nicer to everyone I meet instead of so angry, uh, something like that. But um, uh, but the uh, this big frame of reference um, is uh, is very uh, nurturing uh, to the individual. It gives you a big space in which to grow uh, both your intellectual and uh, you know uh, emotional and uh, wisdom faculties. Um, and it lets you feel friendly towards everybody. You know, I for a long time, I was very angry with people because people are causing the problem. I was very angry with people. And then one day in a long meditation retreat, um, I, uh, I realized, well, I'm actually quite fond of people. So um, I want to help them so that we all take care of each other. And all of this is, uh, is stated very simply, but it really is about as simple as that for me. Um, you know, uh, that we work together to save the one life that we all share. Yes, that's very eloquent. Um, the, the question of interdependence and connectedness, uh, I guess something that hasn't, isn't necessarily emphasized in the economic world we live in, this idea, you know, in its most extreme form is, I suppose, there's no such, no such idea, no such thing as, as society and so forth. But maybe uh, coming out of the COVID crisis to some extent, uh, this sense of interdependence and interconnectedness is maybe more in people's minds. Well, I think it is. I mean, I've heard a number of CEOs uh, say that um, while I was in the COVID um, <clears throat> lockdowns and watching what was happening to the world and my employees and my friends and family, um, I realized that this is not the only crisis. Uh, this is a very visible crisis. And, you know, I'm afraid for my children and myself. So I get it. This is a very visible crisis. Um, but, you know, the climate crisis uh, is just behind it and is even bigger. So I'd better do something about that, too. And it, it's very interesting. I, I think as people have had to deal with the medical emergency the, and social emergencies uh, that COVID has caused, uh, many people say that it has helped them understand the, the, the bigger and ultimately more dangerous uh, climate crisis. And um, if so, that's a, a real silver bullet in this uh, um, dark experience. Yes. I know you're a charity and I imagine quite a bit of your time is taken up fundraising. What can people do to support Client Earth, James? Well, I mean, one thing would be to, to learn about it. So uh, you can go uh, to www.clientearth.org and uh, as just as you were talking about and, uh, and learn uh, about what we do. And then we are a charity. I mean, you can become a member for free and get a monthly newsletter. Uh, and then if you have the wherewithal, of course, you can you can support it, but um, even if you don't have the wherewithal, uh, you can join in the social media work um, and in spreading the word. Um, so there's a there's a community of people uh, that you can join and uh, and support, get the word out, uh, and and connect with. And then, yeah, if you have a good day at the racetrack, you could uh, you could. <laughs> <too>. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, what's next for you, James? <laughs> well, um, you know the um, my own. Uh, work at the moment is focusing on building up the new areas that we're working in. So we started in Europe uh, and back when we were only one person uh, working, uh, you know, working out of the corner of my bedroom, I thought uh, working all across Europe was enough to take on at first. Uh, but we've expanded, as I was saying earlier now, so we're working in Africa for 10 years. Uh, we've been working in China for eight years. We're beginning to work across Southeast Asia. Um, and um, <clears throat> we're, for the last year or so, we've been working with a lot of groups in Brazil, 
to try and understand how we can use the techniques that we can contribute uh, to try and reduce the deforestation there, for example, by bringing cases against uh, companies that are acting badly. And then in the United States. So um, I'm going to the United States for a couple of months soon to help uh, us get started in a real way there. Although I started out there and there are many environmental lawyers there, much more than anywhere else in the world, the environmental groups there aren't um, using all of these financial techniques um, that are, um, so, you know, the uh, adding law to the environmental portfolio uh, makes all of the environmental groups stronger. Adding the economic forms of law uh, then adds yet another dimension. So I'm interested in doing that in, in the U.S. And I, we hired our first um, corporate and securities litigator there, um, who's an expert in Delaware law. And um, I think we'll, we'll see some good things coming out of there. And I'm eager to build up that work uh, in the U.S. so that we can work with all of the groups there uh, to strengthen uh, what they're doing. So my own efforts at the moment are uh, working on building up these new areas, so Southeast Asia, United States, uh, trying to make sure we can contribute something uh, to the uh, deforestation uh, in Brazil and bring these very powerful techniques to bear. Well, I wish you the very best of success with your new project, new development, and uh, thank you for your time today and all the wonderful work you've done, the really important, impactful work you've done legally. And uh, yeah, best of luck with it all, James. Thank you, Fergal. It's a pleasure. If you enjoyed this episode, we think you will enjoy Jeremy Lent's new book, The Web of Meaning, Integrating Science and Traditional Wisdom to Find Our Place in the Universe. Jeremy sees the multiple crises we are facing as symptoms of an underlying worldview of disconnection that has passed its expiration date. The Web of Meaning provides an intellectually solid foundation for an alternative worldview of connectedness, weaving together findings from modern science with insights from Buddhism, Taoism and indigenous knowledge. It offers a coherent, integrated worldview that could enable humanity to thrive sustainably on a flourishing planet. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. It would be great if you could leave a review and share the podcast on social media. You can sign up at iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes. 